if you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to the book of, of Luke, chapter 23, and, and right towards the end of that chapter, uh, beginning in verse 44, is where our text is going to come out today. We've been spending the last six weeks looking at Jesus on the cross and the statements that he's made, and, and we know that the process is that he is preparing to die. Now, all men die, but, but not all men have a, what I'm going to call a dying experience. Those are who are maybe killed in war or, or in an accident or brutally murdered or, or those who have been attacked by some dreadful disease and, and they're out immediately, they just don't have a dying experience unlike the one we're going to look at today. I, I believe it's, it's really a wonderful thing to watch a Christian approach death because they approach it so different than other people within this world. When they leave this world of trouble and sorrow, they know they're going to a better place to be with the Lord. And they embrace it as if it is something that is wonderful, as if it's something that's glorious and something desirable and and filled with joy. And for the Christian who's going through this experience leading up to death, there's a much different approach than those who live life to the fullest for the moment and they abandon everything else because for tomorrow, for them, there's really nothing. Fox's Book of Martyrs, if you've never read that, there's there's a book that was created years ago uh, and it has been updated time and time again. It's about people of faith who have surrendered their lives because of their faith. Well, in it, we read of the dying experience of a couple fellas together, bishops, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, they were burned at the stake in Oxford, England, on October 16, 1555. As Ridley and, and Latimer were, were being set afire at the stake because of their unquenchable fire of faith that they had within them, and, and, and what it did was it, it moved them to action against the Roman Catholic Church at their time. And so the church had put them to death. We think that's kind of weird, and at least in our generation we would think that to be weird. But it was something that was common during the 16th century because of the heresies and the struggles that were going about. But as they were there, being ready to be sacrificed at the stake for their faith, Latimer turns to Ridley and he says this. He says, "'Be of good courage, Brother Ridley, and play the man.'" For we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall be never put out. When Ridley saw the flames coming for him, he as well spoke out, and he said this in his dying words, Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Lord, receive my spirit. And on the other side of the stake is the same thing that came from Latimer. He said, oh, Father in heaven, receive my soul. I mean, these two men, Latimer and Ridley, experienced death unlike many other people. But even their death was no experience compared to the one of Jesus upon the cross that we've been looking at the last six weeks. Perhaps no other subject fascinates us more than death. 
The reason being we, we've yet to die ourselves. And so uh, intuitively, it's something that we begin to think about. What is it like to die? I mean, it, it, we know that death is inevitable for each one of us. It's going to happen. We, we can't escape it for too long. And, and the fact is, it, it's only altered by the condition of when Christ comes to take those who are His and to redeem them in heaven. No doubt... I think few of us have had life-changing experiences where we've been with somebody who have breathed their last. We've watched them close their eyes into this world in hopes that they would open them into the kingdom of heaven and see God for who He really is face to face. We ask ourselves, what was that experience like? What did they feel? What did they hear? What did they experience? What, what was the first thing that, that came to their mind when they realized this is it? What was the last thing that went through their mind before they closed their eyes to this world? Now, I, I don't think that I have all the answers, because I really don't. And I've been with many people at that very moment. And I can't tell you what went through their minds. I can't tell you what they experienced physically. I can give you my observations and my suspicions, but it's not a full answer because I don't know. There's no way that we can know what they experienced unless they come back to life and they tell us. My mother did that. Uh, and she was able to express some things that just floored me because of her death experiences. Yet, we come to our text today, here in Luke chapter 20, 23, and Luke reveals to us what was on Jesus' mind as he was waiting to exhale his last breath. So I, I want to reset the scene for you just a bit, take you back to Judea and to just outside the city of Jerusalem there on a hill called Golgotha. And walk you through this experience as we try to envision what really transpired on that hill all those years ago. Luke 23, beginning in verse 44. It was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. The curtain of the temple was torn in two, and then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned to their home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. I mean, the uncanny darkness reported at Jesus' crucifixion, it was no metaphor. This was a reality. It was a real historical event based on eyewitness testimony and outside biblical sources that will even identify that at that moment of time, at noon on a certain Friday, the sun stopped shining for three hours. 
Now, now some have suggested that it might have been a, a solar eclipse, but that couldn't be the case because it was full moon. Because the Passover is designed to take place at this specific full moon. So this, the solar eclipse was in the total opposite direction of how it could have happened. And yet the phenomena was recognized all over the Mediterranean and all the way even into China. There are reports of it that took place. It was recorded that during these last three hours of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, this eerie darkness struck the land. And just as everything else that took place there on the cross that day, the darkness was also prophesied long ago before it happened. Amos chapter 8 verse 9, Amos makes this statement that on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. In the darkness of night, our fears are at their greatest. Our hearts tremble with the unknown and our, and our breath quickens and, and we almost suffocate ourselves by breathing in too much oxygen because we're just so nervous about what is taking place and we struggle to breathe. And I'm sure that at the moment of darkness that day that Jesus felt the weight of the world upon his shoulders knowing that he was taking with him the sins of the world. And his breath must have been quickened because of it. And with all that he was experiencing in that moment, I don't think he could wait to exhale. And yet his exhale would be different than any other exhale before. You see, as Jesus was waiting to exhale, he cried out. I mean, to cry out in death, that's not unusual because that happens all the time. Many people have cried out in death either because of the pain that they're experiencing or because of the fear of the unknown. Some people have even cried out in regret when they begin to look back on their life and they realize all the things that they have done and they wish they would not or they would have more time to have changed those things. And they've regretted the unalterable facts of life. So many opportunities that were missed that they cry out in regret. There are those who have cried out in misery or, or in mercy. And the reality of the Christian's past, a helpless present, and for some a hopeless future provokes our cry for mercy. But that's not the cry that we see here with Jesus. So in and of itself, a cry out in death isn't an uncommon experience, but one that is shared by so many people. So then I think we need to ask, what makes this cry of Christ so much more different than what is common to so many people? Why is his cry at this moment something that is unique? I believe that we'll see the distinctiveness of his cry when you view it in the light of Isaiah chapter 42, verse 2. I mean, that prophecy contains this, this statement which seems to be a tension here of what is happening uh, in, in conflict with Jesus fulfilling of it. I mean, the prophecy says in Isaiah 42 too, that he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. So what, what's going on here? And yet set against this announcement here in Luke 23 verse 46 when it says that he was calling out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But we also have to recognize his statement, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit is also a fulfillment of prophecy. 
You have to go back to uh, Psalm chapter 31, verse 5, and we see the psalmist writes these very words, into your hand I commit my spirit, but let's keep reading. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. It's not a cry that God has forsaken him as he had spoken earlier. This is a cry of redemption, a cry of God's victory, a cry of God's faithfulness in all that he is saying here at this moment. So then the prophecy and the reality seems to suggest that maybe there was something very unusual about this moment of Jesus on the cross. He had previously cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that statement also kind of seems to contradict Isaiah 42 too. But then he cries out a second time. At three o'clock, that cry of my God, my God, seems to be a cry of desolation. And it had rung through the darkness and it invoked God to act. And at that point, everything became dark. And at this second cry, things change. But you see, in the, in the first cry when he said, my God, my God, the words in, in, in Aramaic or in Hebrew were Eli, Eli. And so some people thought he was calling out to Elijah, which is, goes a little different because when Jesus spoke to his father or his God in heaven, he often referred to him as Abba, not necessarily as God. He had this relationship when he called him father instead of just my God. But in that darkness would symbolize the alienation and the wrath and the judgment of God upon sin that Jesus was taking upon himself. It would be a place where Jesus would respond just a little bit different. So he responds, my God, my God. Now, David wrote in Psalm 104, verse 29, he says, when you hide your face... They are dismayed. And when you take away their breath, they, they die and return to the dust. You see, the Son of Man had felt as though the sin of the world was crushing him. And it was shutting him off from the face of his Father because of the judgment that had to come against him. And so in the darkness of that hour, Jesus cries out, but the hours of darkness, and in the midst of utter darkness, Jesus was conscious of the very fact that God would be returning his favor and his love to him. That this forsakenness was momentary because of judgment that had to come. So as he cries out, this cry isn't a cry of, God have mercy on me. But it's a cry, rather, of victory, knowing what God was doing through this very moment. It's a celebration cry. It's a joyous exclamation of what God is doing for him and through him. So Jesus shouts for joy, and he cries out in celebration. So the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, he says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see that? 
Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. This wasn't something that he was afraid to go to. It was something that he saw as a joyous experience in a moment. And so the dying experience of Jesus was a celebration because he knew that it was going to be victorious in the end. And so he cries out, So in streets of Jerusalem, this cry, this shout of victory, rings out in the ninth hour. And at that moment, at that moment, it breaks through the darkness. And in death, our Lord shouted in joy. And in death, He cried out in victory. While waiting to exhale, Jesus discovers there is victory to be had in His death. As this was the purpose for Him coming. So... The second thing I think we discover in his waiting to exhale, Jesus spoke. But there's power in the words in which he spoke. Look again at at verse 46 of Luke 23. As he's calling out with this loud voice, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus said, Father... Now, it was fitting for him this time. Now, earlier he had just spoke to his mother, but he didn't use the term mother. He called her woman. But he will not do that to his Father in heaven. You see, there's always been this connection with his Father in which he is always going to address him in that manner. The last thing before he dies marks by the same strong inherent contrast. It was a part of his life from the very beginning. The very first words that we hear Jesus utter are in Jerusalem, in the temple, with some Pharisees and some teachers of the law that he had been talking with. But now he speaks, and he speaks to his mother who has just found him. And so Luke chapter 2, verse 49, Jesus said to them, Why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Or some translations may say, or about my father's business. You knew I'd be here. I wonder if that thought went through Mary's mind as she was at the feet of Jesus, knowing I knew he'd be here. This has been the Father's plan from the very beginning. And so, in these statements, it proves that his ruling motive for life is also his passion in death. He'd always sought to orientate his thoughts and his actions around his obedience to his father. And his final thoughts had found their focus in his father's tender mercy at this moment. He'd come forth from the father's presence of heaven. And he gave up his glory as, as we just had read to earth earlier. And he entered into this world to be like us, to be one with us. But the world never dulled the certainty of the relationship that he had with his Father. The voice of God had spoken on two occasions, once at his baptism and another time on the mountain in which he was transfigured and he spoke with Elijah remember, and Moses. And Peter, James, and John were there and they heard from heaven the voice and the statement of God that said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. 
His father recognized him. It was there before, it was perfectly natural for him to turn to God as his father. And it was the right that he should die as he had lived with his name on his lips. You see, father lit up his approach to the valley of the shadow of death. Father restored the consciousness to Jesus of his favor and his love. Father spoke of the tie that bound their hearts together in a unique oneness that we still can't comprehend fully. Father breathed the sense of peace which would transform that hour of death from something of fear into something of joy. And then he said, into your hands. Now the hands of God suggest for me perfect safety and security. Just knowing the hands of God. And Jesus knew the hands of men to be cruel and to be wicked, but he also knew his Father's hands. And they were unlike the the hands of men that he had been living with. You see, Jesus said in Mark 9, 31, as he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. He said in Luke twenty two twenty one, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. And in Matthew six twenty four, then he came to his disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. It was fulfilled when Judas led the soldiers to Gethsemane there in Matthew chapter 26, verse 50. And Jesus says, friend, do what you came to do. And then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. You see, Jesus understood the hands of man, and he understands how cruel and almost inhuman we can be with our own hands. But he knew the hands of his father even better. So Jesus was in the hands of ruthless humanity from the moment his arrest until he bowed his head to die. Peter summed it up this way on the day of Pentecost when he preached his first sermon there and the church began. In Acts chapter 2 verse 23, he said this about Jesus. He said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, cruel hands. They struck him and beat him. These cruel hands, they nailed him to a cross and they pierced his side. You see, they penalized the only one who was perfect in this world. They killed the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They crucified the Christ, their Messiah. Savior. You see, the hands of man had done their worst and they could do no more now that his work was finished. Therefore, he was then surrendering his body into not only the hands of men, so now that he could deliver his spirit into the hands of his Father. Jesus had now come to the point of death as a result of his will to atone for the sins and to redeem us. The last thing, the last item in in, in the account that needed to be paid, and this meant that that he had to yield himself to death. Because the penalty for sin is death. 
And so he had to offer it. But he would not die as men die when they anticipate the darkness and the despair of that which is unknown to them. He knew that in dying, he would vanquish the power of death. And that he would open the gates of the kingdom for the people of God and all who would put their faith in him. And it was only through his death that he could destroy him that had the power of death. And he could release those who through fear of death had been subject to lifelong bondage. That's us. You see, this is why that light of victory was in his eyes at that moment. And I wonder what it was like in the darkness of that hour to know that the light of the world appeared to be snuffed out. And yet he was still alive. You see, his last word would be to commit himself into the hands of his father. And those hands would be held out as if it were a parent receiving a child. And tender, gentle care. I I, I suggest to you that Jesus knew that the hands of God were a place of perfect safety and security. And he could trust his spirit into his hands because he lived by that concept. He had likened himself to the shepherd and who would go in search of a lost sheep, but then when he found him, would pick him up with his own hands and carry him back home to the fold. He declared that one day he would lay down his life for his sheep and that they would not perish. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 29, My Father who has given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to what? Snatch them out of my Father's hands. No man could take anything out of the hands of God as long as he holds on to them. And so Jesus would place himself in the keeping and the sense of security right there in his Father's hands. And he would resign himself with the trust of a child into the hands of a God that he knew were both tried and true. God had spoken of his hands often when he had promised safety to his people in the Old Testament. He said that he would hide them in the hollow of his hand. That he would hide them in the shadow of his hand and he would would not shorten his hand and would save them. And he promised to send them his hand from heaven to help them in their times of need. The hands of God are powerful and effective. And so Jesus knew that those hands were safe and they were gentle for his soul. He knew that those hands were soft and yet they were very mighty. He knew that he could trust those hands and that they would never fail. They would never tremble. And so he said, into your hands, I commit my spirit. So there was only one thing left for Jesus to do. It was his spirit, his breath. And while waiting to exhale, Jesus committed his last breath to his Father. And his words, I commit my spirit, was a sovereign assertion of his own power and his control over what was taking place at that moment. They were not taking his life, he was giving it. Other men sink into the grip of death and their spirit returns to God who gave it to them. 
but he doesn't die as other men. He didn't die from the loss of blood or from the beatings. He didn't die from the suffocation that the cross would eventually bring upon him. His death was something that he gives. It's true that that no man dies until his hour has come. But the Son of Man could claim the power over his life in such a unique way that he determines the hour. One of the greatest reasons the Father loved him was the fact that he could lay down his life in the sure hope and certainty that he would also take it back up again. Listen to what he says to us in John chapter 10, verse 18. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Life could not fail until he gave his own deliberate consent. Death could not act upon Jesus until he willed that he should die. And so when he got ready to die, he died. Jesus finally exhaled his last breath. Jesus gave up his spirit. No man took it from him. Finally, he exhaled so I can inhale. For 33 years, I believe, Jesus waited to exhale. From the moment that He came into this world, He could not wait to breathe His last. He could not wait to go to the cross. He could not wait to give up His Spirit. He could not wait to surrender Himself to that moment so that you and I could have an opportunity to fully live. We look at the gifts that were brought to him at his birth by the Magi. Gifts that were seemed awkward and unusual, but yet those gifts were also significant because they were in preparation for what? This moment, his death. Even though the eternal word was in the beginning with God, who was God, who is God, Yet that word became flesh and blood, and it lived amongst us. He was born in a stable in Bethlehem, where he took his very first breath as a man, while he was waiting to go to Calvary. From a manger in a stable, to Egypt, to the hills of Nazareth and around the Sea of Galilee and down the Jordan Valley, up on that hill through the Via Dolorosa, making its way to Calvary, Jesus has been preparing since the very beginning. 33 years in this world for this Friday morning. To be placed upon a cross, and in the darkness of that hour of that day, in the ninth hour, See, he had to pass through many trying experiences and and many satisfying encounters as well. But he kept breathing through all of those. His life was threatened, his character was maligned, and his work was belittled, but he still kept breathing. He had been falsely accused, he had been wrongly arrested, and brutalized by soldiers. 
And still Jesus kept breathing. He was unjustly tried. He was immorally condemned and badly beaten. But there he was still. Even on a cross, he was breathing. And when he got ready to die, he exhaled and he breathed his last. Jesus, the breath of life. He breathed out. And it was from the breath of God through the nostrils of man that life came. Something happened when the Son of God exhaled. When the author of life breathed out his last breath, it caused a phenomena in nature from the darkness of that day. Then all of a sudden, the earth began to shake and Calvary shook and the rocks exploded around them and, and split open the, the, the fissures there. And an earthquake that is noted all around the Mediterranean area and was felt all the way to Rome shook the world. He breathed his last, and it caused the curtain in the temple to be torn from top to bottom, no longer making a separation between God and man. Jesus exhaled. And while waiting to exhale, my last breath... I know what I'm resolved to do. And until then, I'm going to cry out, and I'm going to speak out, and I'm going to tell others about this moment in his life. Since I have inhaled God's goodness, I'm going to exhale his glory. I've inhaled his grace, I will exhale my gratitude. I have inhaled his spirit, I'll exhale his sovereignty. I've inhaled His love, and I'm going to exhale His loving kindness to others. I've inhaled His power, I will exhale His praise. I've inhaled His holiness, and I'll exhale His hallelujah. Let's exhale together. Scripture says that let everything that has breath praise the Lord. If you inhale, you will exhale. As we close down, I want you to do something with me. Breathe in with me. Take, take a a deep breath and hold your breath. Just breathe it in and, and, and now just hold it as long as you can. Do not release it. Hold on to your breath. Keep it there in your lungs and let that feeling begin to just stay. Hold it until you can't any longer. And it has to force itself out of you. You see, relief is only going to come when you breathe that out of your lungs 
in order that you can then breathe again. But Jesus' last breath wasn't his final. He breathes again. And here's our hope. There will be a day in which you will take your last breath. Your lungs will no longer hold the oxygen in you that you need to survive. They will dispel all of it. But if you put your faith in the one who was on that cross, you will breathe again. But your breath will not take place in this world. You will breathe a life that is only discovered in heaven. What He has done for us is He breathes life into us. And in Christ, we are a new creation. The old is gone and the new come and there's something unique about this moment and he could wait exhale you see we're getting ready this week to walk that road to Calvary but next Sunday there was new breath in a dead body it came back to life lives eternally that my friends I cannot wait to exhale so that one more time I can inhale his goodness his grace his mercy his love his forgiveness his sanctification his holiness his awesomeness and grandeur of who he really is the man that I have followed my entire life, I will get to see face to face. And you can too. But you've got to trust him in this. Put yourself in his hands. Those hands which have been scarred with the nails. That want to gently and tenderly hold you within their strength. But it's your decision now. Breathe. Let's stand together and pray. Father, you are the author of life, you are the breath of heaven. we know that we can live. You've demonstrated that to us by coming into this world in the form of a baby, rising into manhood to surrender your life upon a cross, to exhale that which is in this world, to dispel it, and yet to know that you would be able to live once more. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting?
But we know where it is. It's been conquered by Jesus. Father, we live, we move, and we breathe in Him and in Him alone. And it's in His name, it's above every name, we pray.